Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. And we could not be joined by Isaac this week. We canceled but we him. Are. We, he's, been, he's been canceled. The Southern Baptist episode is what got him. Yeah, he's uh, gone. But we are joined by Nathan Thomas. Nathan, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Nathan. Um, what what more should I say other than my name? Just oh, whatever you want. I mean, just, yeah, what, whatever you whatever you think the listeners should know. I guess. I mean, recording recording from a, a rock band mic. I think that's that definitely yeah, that needs to be true. lifted it, up. <laughs> look, it. I never had to upgrade my webcam, which is why it looked so bad, <laughs> and. My work never went like full remote or anything. I went to the office every day of the pandemic, so there was no need for me to get like a work from home set up. And so when I uh, agreed to do this, I was like, "Oh, I wonder if I have that mic stored away somewhere because uh, I like recorded music on it for a while. Not the best quality for music, but here I am uh, using it for the first time in like three years." So. And it doesn't say it sounds good. That's that's kind of the that's the most amusing part to me is it it sounds like a legit microphone. I guess I shouldn't have called it out. But uh No, it, no, it, it, it should look it I'm using the rock band microphone because we all know I'm a, a rock star of this whole uh, internet Christian thing. So <laughs> absolutely <laughs> with my always lukewarm takes and uh constantly declaring that I'm never going to take part in discourse. Well, you are making a name for yourself in um, in like mediocre Appalachia takes that people take extremely seriously. Oh, so God. It's yeah. making like the whole online Appalachian thing. It's like I feel like I've been not necessarily burned, but like disillusioned by that whole thing. I uh, especially after the Hillbilly LG came out and people's uh, entire online presence became dissing JD Vance at every chance they got. Uh, and what happened was that the people who already had platforms got more successful. Uh, and then the people who like actually probably should have been, uh, should have had their voices amplified still in the trenches uh trying to grab every scrap they can get in the discourse trenches yeah like as a veteran of obama's war on coal <laughs> are you a friend of coal uh look i had to see that shit my entire life <laughs> so friend of miners not friend of coal let's uh phrase it that way yeah that's sure. good <laughs> it's uh, uh, friends of my great grandfather who uh, has a UMWA logo on his grave, and uh, not necessarily the Jim uh, Justices not paying taxes of the world. That is metal. Metal is hell to have a UMWA symbol on your grave. I will say, I recently visited Nathan in real life because we are IRL friends. Yeah. Now, now, now we are, and uh, I think. The closest I'd ever been to an actual functioning coal mine was when I visited you in Huntington. I mean, I've been down the Beckley Exhibition coal mine, but I would not describe myself as um, a friend of coal or a veteran of the war on coal. So I was driving through Western West Virginia and there were those coal I, whatever the, the ramps shoots. are, the shoots yeah. that go they over carry it over the road. Yeah, they go over the road, and I was like, I know what those are. I know what they are, but still, forbidden water slide. I want, I want to ride it so bad. <laughs> it's like the, it's like the the cousin of the uh, the runaway truck ramps. I always want every time I see one of those, I'm like, is that only a southern thing? I, I feel like that's I don't I haven't seen those living up here in Minnesota. But like, I, I want to see it. I want to see a truck go down one so bad. Well, just like, because it's like, they have the two different, they have the like, oh shit, you're almost going to hit it sand part. But then they like, oh, oh shit, you're really going to run off the side of this mountain like water barrels. And I think that, yeah, you have to get, I want to see them like hit both of those. I've, I've only seen a truck in there once, but he was not that inspired. He'd only made it up about a quarter of the way. So uh, like, in response to your, is that a Southern thing? My brother is a trucker now. And he says, yes, it is. And Interesting. Because uh, in other places where they spend money on their roads, they simply uh, 
make more road so that the grade isn't so <laughs> steep and you just, it just takes you longer to go up the mountain. <laughs> oh, we just uncovered something. So that's interesting. So if people don't know what we're what talking do you about. you mean the South took the easy way yeah, out again? Right. Again, yeah, right. Oh my gosh. That is, that's funny. I mean, because I just think about like driving from like, uh, East Tennessee into into Asheville and like and then up and then up into like West Virginia. You see them like every you know every time there's any kind of grade. So that makes that makes sense. I just thought it was kind of a natural thing. But then I started thinking. I was like, well, do we just not have hills in Minnesota in the same way? So we don't need those. But there it is. It's infrastructure. So well, yeah, my brother has driven now through the Appalachians and the Rockies, and he says it's actually easier to drive through the Rockies because of the infrastructure that like California puts up. Hmm even though they are taller mountains. Hmm. Well, we're really giving the, the audience what they came for on this one, I think. <laughs> just, just like we've, we've already covered runaway truck ramps. <laughs> Cold it's, uh, it's infrastructure week. It's infrastructure week. I like, mean, there's, there's uh, not... Isn't that, isn't that Biden's big uh, thing he's going to uh, be remembered for is his uh, infrastructure? <laughs> Look, I... Because of what I do for work, I've had to listen to... So many Joe Manchin interviews and press conferences. And pre-election, he was like, oh, why would you do a stimulus when you can throw a bunch of money at infrastructure uh, and you get uh, roads and you get people to work building things? Uh, And he said, like, go big, go bold, whatever with it. And then he changed his mind, believe it or not. (laughs) Yeah. And now there's a big infrastructure bill on the table. And he's like, yeah, maybe you scale it down a little bit. So that's what I have to deal with. Ugh, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, aside from what you do for work, you also are involved in um, a mutual aid organization in Huntington. And um, I was, I just know we were just talking about it when I was visiting. And so I was really interested in how that got started and... Um, I guess kind of what the structure of that looks like. I don't know. I'm just interested in all of it. So if you want to get into it. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure how it started because like to just be blunt, I don't like lead anything specifically except like maybe our Friday food distribution uh, that we do. But from what I can gather, a bunch of like non-church affiliated people uh, here in Huntington who were trying different odds and ends to get some sort of mutual aid together, basically just linked up with a church because they would get like foundational institutional support that they wouldn't get anywhere else. And uh, because of this partnership where most of our volunteers are uh, not even like affiliated with the church at this point, we have maybe six or seven different forms of outreach a week, whether it be like food distribution, uh, riverfront cleanups, uh, driving around town and giving like care bags to anyone we see. Uh, And because we are in Huntington, which uh, at one time was the epicenter of the opioid epidemic, uh, we do a lot of Narcan giveaways just to make sure that people have this sort of uh, life-saving tool on their person at all time. And it's been like easier than ever to use or administer Narcan because of these like auto injectors that we give away uh, where there's literally like a little voice that talks you through how to use it in case like you've never had to like within the injector itself. Uh, So in any given week, we maybe give out 50 to 75 things of Narcan through our like various outreaches. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So like, I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but you know, we, we kind of, we've used two different words here, like mutual aid and then outreach, right? And I think outreach is one of those words that the church itself is probably pretty comfortable with. And that's how they see themselves with outreach, I would say kind of has more of a like singular focus going outward um, type of thing where mutual aid is kind of like, 
there's a collective sense to that. So do you think there's a difference between those two or do you just, or do you all use them as um, kind of interchangeably? I think we've been using them sort of interchangeably, but I would say there is that difference that you mentioned. It's just no one here around here is really like enforced or pushed like that, like idea. I would say maybe for the, the, the church side of this specific group, it's probably more outward of like, oh, we're just uh, putting our stamp of approval on this, but like not a lot of people. I mean, there's maybe like four or five volunteers from the church itself, mm. but the rest of the like 25 or so of us that do it aren't affiliated with the church that kind of sponsors it. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there churches out there are always trying to figure out like how do we get people engaged and stuff like that, you know, and how do we bring them into the building? And, you know, something like this, when I hear something like this, it's like, oh, well, this is this is exactly what the church should be doing, right? The church should be kind of partnering with people who are out in the community trying to uh help other people and without trying to get them necessarily to come and join the uh the um roles, if you will, of the of the church. But instead, like, how do we kind of sidle alongside of people that are doing this kind of community work? Uh, and it's like, it seems pretty simple, right? Like, the, everything that you're doing seems like the stuff the church should be doing anyway. So there's, I don't know, the, the partnership, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's happening, especially in West Virginia, where, you know, my experience of the church in West Virginia has always been a little bit more fraught, I guess. <laughs> so, so I like the idea. I, I like the fact that it is this thing where there's not, it doesn't sound like it's, it's not like an evangelism program as much as it is no. like, it's mutual aid. Like you said, it's this yeah, idea it's, that we're going to be out there helping other people who need it, no matter what they need. It's not really even close to being evangelism because like I was talking to the, uh, the woman that heads up the church side of things um, last night and we were talking about how like so many recovery programs, uh, especially like inpatient recovery programs in Huntington, they re require some sort of like religious aspect. Uh, like there's this uh, group called Recovery Point, which they do a lot of good work, but also part of their thing is like, oh, there has to be like some sort of religious element, uh, you're required to attend church at least like once a week or something. And it's like people need help. They don't need more barriers to getting that help. Uh, so we're not handing out like, you know, here's your Narcan and here's a pamphlet on why you should join the Episcopal Church. We're we could just kill two birds with one stone, though, and just put the the shield on the Narcan um, uh, dispenser thing. It'll be fine. We, we do have stickers that say the Episcopal Church welcomes you, and we are going to to put that on the needle itself. So <laughs> once it goes into your thigh, you'll be reminded. Yeah, you'll wake you'll you'll wake back up and be like, oh, okay. Um, it's just good that this church's logo is a shield because we're always playing defense for some reason. Hmm. Wait, say, say more about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know how uh, Episcopalians get so like defensive on the internet? <laughs> I, wasn't oh, sure boy, this, do we. I, I wasn't sure if that it's, was a bit or not, so I'm, I'm here for this now. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I said it as a laugh line and then it did not get a laugh. <laughs> I'm so, we're so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. That's on me. Uh, uh, but it's like for being so defensive, that's probably good that our literal like icon <laughs> of our church is a literal shield. I mean, there's a there's a lot to unpack there of of also like like when we don't want to have to deal with something, you can just hide behind it and just hide yeah, behind right. the shield for a while. There's I think that that has some legs, uh, unfortunately. Um, and it's easy to bludgeon people with a shield. There's lots of places you could go with this one. I need to yeah. stop talking before uh, I don't get before ordained. you get canceled. Yeah, <laughs> get canceled before by Michael that. Curry cancels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would be yeah. Well, um, yeah. So right, I, yeah. So our our focus is really just trying to help people. And if you're a person who, say, lives on the riverfront here in Huntington, you already have enough barriers as is because you're probably getting harassed by either the neighborhood or police. You probably don't have a, a form of ID, which means you probably don't have a job. And those are already three pretty major barriers right there. The last thing that we need to do 
is come in and say like, Hey, we'll give you this, but you have to say a prayer with us. Like it's, it's not, our business is in helping people in the place they're in right now, not trying to convert them. Which I, a stance I agree with. Um, I'm wondering if, what was the church's reaction or did they have a reaction at all to your group giving out Narcan? Cause I think, um, in like the mutual aid networks that I know of in North Texas, that's like a pretty separate thing from like a lot of um, church work or even church work that is like giving out food and giving out water and stuff. So did they have a reaction or was there tension there? I'm not sure. I can't speak on that, but um, you know, the, the church that does this, it's not, the Episcopal Church in Huntington that I go to. It's one of the uh, the others here. Um, you know, they used to have like a parsonage type building, but that has basically become a, a, a storehouse for uh, everything we're doing, whether it's like food distro uh, or the Narcan, which we uh, uh, keep in the church house. So there's got to be some level of approval from their uh, their vestry or their priest, it's just I uh, I haven't had any interaction with that specifically. Sure, uh, that's we fair. Have, we we have a middle woman that does all that. <laughs> yeah, I you know it's it's I think it's just when you think about all the problems that you know the church either uh, brings into the world or perpetuates in the world, stuff like this. <laughs> it always seems like it's like why isn't every single church doing this right like this is this is pretty easy um for the I mean, easy and as far as like it's not like a program that you have to get off up off the ground and, and like a lot of churches are trying to do with different outreach programs and stuff like that but it's like it's like fundamentally the the type of thing that every church should want to be doing right like being out in the community and like not necessarily just catering to a building and maybe i'm being maybe i'm being just naive that most churches actually would want to do this but yeah, it's it's nice to think about a church that's not getting pushback for something like that, or giving pushback for something that because it's because there's a, if there's a need in the community for it, right? So it, it it transforms the church from being the arbiter of you know what is acceptable for for us to get kind of give help and just says okay wherever we need help that's where we're going to be. I, it's always fascinating to me. I think it was Melissa Flora Bixler on Twitter who said that you know what if churches uh, opted as. Uh, as mutual aid institutions to pay off the student debt of all of their of all of their parishioners, and as soon as I heard that, I was like, "Well, damn!" I was like, "Not only because that would affect me, but it's like one of those things of like, there's all these like creative ways that churches could do this and actually impact the world in ways that we just typically don't do it." So uh, there's no question there; it's just more of a statement. Uh, feel free to respond. <laughs> uh, no, I agree, and I hope that eventually we have some sort of like model or like guide to book or like a zine or whatever that we can send out to, to other uh, churches that want to get something like this off the ground uh, just to, to point them in the direction to do so. Really like, you know, the main reason that I got involved with it is uh, because of work. I have these very weird weekends where I'm off Thursday and Friday uh, and as it turns out, next to no one I know are off those days too. Uh, but I like I saw the work that they were doing on Facebook, and I noticed that they did have things they were doing on these days. So it's like, oh, if I turn my back on this chance to help the community, then I'm, you know, no better than anyone else. Or that's probably the wrong way to say it, but like. I'm being offered this opportunity to help. I should probably take it because it's the right thing to do. I've got more than enough, so I should probably, you know, try to help out. One of the things that I, I love about this, and and I always try to keep myself from saying the word neoliberalism on the pod because I can literally tie it to everything. But this is like literally, Same yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's everywhere, uh, and it's coming for you, or it's already got you, actually, probably. But anyway, um, but like the the thing about like that I love about mutual aid when you talk about it in terms of capitalism or stuff like that is like 
it literally came about from like Peter Kropotkin like going out into the woods and like basically like observing animals and expecting to see like survival of the fittest, but instead finding like this place where all of like all the animals were kind of working and like working together. I'm, I'm oversimplifying what he actually saw, but working together in this way. And so it's like this thing that it kind of engaging in mutual aid essentially works against like the kind of individualism and that sense of like, you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can't ever accept any help. And it just assumes the fact like, if I need something, I have to ask for it. And so there's there's so many like kind of walls that are being broken down by that of this like uh, ability to have to be able to say, express a need without feeling like less because of that. But also knowing that when you express a need that the community is going to rise up and, and help you meet that need. That's like radical stuff. Like radical, radical stuff that kind of flies in the face of everything um, that neoliberalism is trying to push at us. The idea that we have to kind of be always in competition with one another. That if I if if they get something paid off, their medical debt paid off, and I had already paid off my medical debt, you know, then there's some kind of like conflict there. As opposed to saying, you know what, I'm having this struggle right now, and we can help you with that struggle. So here you go. And it's it's just such a radical way of thinking about the church and thinking about engaging with one another. Again, not a question. I'm just again, (laughs) you got me all you got me all worked up. So I I I don't know if you, you. Either of you have thoughts on that, but it's like, it's one of those things where it flies in the face of literally everything that I think the world tells people that we have to, uh, how we have to act and work in the world. And I think there's something really beneficial and appealing to that for people like my daughter, who's, you know, getting ready to go to college, where they have kind of seen behind the curtain of the way the system works and even the church works, and they want something different. So these like microcosm kind of opportunities to, to engage in like, real community, I think are going to blow up uh, with as, you know, kind of people like yourselves who are much younger than I am, you know, kind of decide to be like, we want to do this stuff. Just like you said, Nathan, I I feel like I have to be involved in this and they're not going to go to the church to do it. They're going to find places like this that are actually doing tangible work in the world. So. Do you have anything for that, CJ? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree. And uh, it just, I was actually watching a documentary on the coal industry the other day um, for a different project that I'm working on. And there was this clip of, um, uh, ah, shit, the guy that's in, the guy that was responsible for Upper Big Branch. What's his face? Don Blankenship. Yeah. Uh, uh, worthy fight corner contender. There you um, go. Yes. Although he like actually went to federal prison. So I guess he's, he's out he, though. And he's he was still trying to claim innocence. Which is, he ran for president. Uh, yeah, <laughs> under right. the Constitution no, Party. Senate, Senate. He ran for Senate. I was like deep in his Wikipedia page as I was watching the documentary. But anyway, in this documentary, there's clips of him, you know, talking about social Darwinism, basically of being like, we live in a capitalist society and it, that means it's survival of the fittest. And he was using that as, as a reason for why um, they could pay miners nothing and not protect them from explosions like the one at Upper Big Branch. But, you know, as I was listening to you uh, rage against neoliberalism, Brian, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it is like social Darwinism is a lie. It's not real. Survival of the fittest doesn't happen in nature or in social situations. And uh, like we, we protect each other. Like we are the only, we are the only protection we have. Like that's, that's the point. And think yeah, about, no, if, oh, go if, ahead, Nathan. I was, I was going to say like, uh, if we don't help each other, no one else will. There's no uh, tech bro coming to Appalachia uh, trying to, uh, save everything. It's not going to happen. Uh, if they, do come, they're only coming for their own uh, uh, capitalistic greed. But it was sort of like a, a a freeing moment once it clicked in my hand. That's like, oh no, I'm no better than anyone else. And this whole idea of uh, competition with one another is a lie where they're just pitting us against each other. And, you know, the people who uh, walk the streets of Huntington all day looking for their next fix or looking for bikes to take to sell. Like I'm on any given day, I'm like two or three fuck ups from being that person. Uh, But then again, we sort of all are like it. There's, I mean, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm just going off on a bad tangent here, but it, 
we're no single one of us is better than no it we're all so i feel like at all times society or whatever class of people you're in are looking for a group of people to look down upon so yes. that we can go well at least i'm better than those people yes it's it's why people watch like quarters uh, so the watch orders and be like, well, you know, at least I may collect stuff, but at least it, my house isn't a mess like they are. I could get rid of this if I wanted to. They couldn't, and they tipped it. It's we're all looking for someone to point fingers at and be like, well, you know, you, you're the person that makes me feel better about myself today. Uh, when really it's just made up. It we're all good people is what I'm getting. I mean, are we good people? I don't know. It's another can of worms. Either way, uh, to simplify this, it's like I really don't believe I'm better than anyone else. It's just uh, I feel compelled to help people out, I guess. Well, you, you hit on something that I routinely talk about mostly to my kids in the car as they put in their AirPods and stop listening to me. Uh, but it's like, you know, the role of like the homeless or the unhoused, the role of people who are like standing in the corner in society is not like we don't actively try to fix that, even though the, the money needed to kind of house people and to take care of basic needs is there. And it's not like this exorbitant thing that we can't fix. It's there for that. Re- it's not fixed for the reason that you just mentioned, which is like kind of, and this is, this is me. I'm going off on my, uh, on a little bit of my, what do you call it? Conspiratorial uh, thing right here. Let's get into it. But it is, but it's like, it's so that when you see a person who is unhoused or see a person who like my wife and I were driving to work this morning and we saw a person, you know, shooting up heroin in just right next to the hospital. And it's so that you can think, well, at least I'm not them, right? Like there, there's an implicit message of like, we're not going to help these people because by having these people, it puts you into this, it keeps you in line in the system of being able to say, you have to work hard. You have to be responsible. Don't take any chances to try to disrupt this system because if you disrupt the system, you might end up like them. Now, this is this is total Brian crazy, like and standing in front of a, a whiteboard <laughs> sketching out conspiracies. But I, I firmly believe like the system perpetuates itself in that way because it, it forces you never to want to take care of other people because if you take care of other people, you put yourself at risk. And if you put yourself at risk, you could end up with nothing, right? And that's like, that's like the big fear or the big lie, if you will, of capitalism in society is the idea that you will take a chance and you won't have anything anymore. And so you have to like cobble everything together and hold it as tight as you can. And, and I think that, again, this is, this is why mutual aid is so radical because it says we're not going to buy into that. We're going to go out there and we're going to help you get what you need. And we tried to try to save, you know, or save is probably the wrong word, but assist people in the ways that they actually need to be assisted rather than kind of putting on this show. I don't know. Thoughts on that? Am I totally nuts? No. Yeah, no, I agree. No. Okay, good. <laughs> I also think, I mean, like, it's one of the failures of the American church, right? Is that, uh, well, at least uh, in the context that I grew up in, I grew up in like upper middle class, wealthy suburb in Texas. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the sermons that I heard and a lot of the theology that I just kind of like learned as a matter of course, it's, is designed to keep people like isolated, right? Um, and if you're growing up in a suburb like that, uh, you maybe don't realize how close you are to precarity or how close your neighbors are mm. to precarity. And uh, one of the failures of the American church is, is not like revealing how, how, like how ragged our social safety net is and like how close all of us are, you know, like Nathan said, two or two or three fuck ups or two or three bad, bad turns of luck. Or away. one illness. One illness is yeah. for most people. So anyway, sorry. Or, you know, just like a car accident or, you know, like an unexpected death in the family. Like there's so many or, you know, like in 2008, like the recession hit and hit in Texas, actually, like the oil and gas industry was booming at the time. And so um, like my classmates, it was like people who worked in the oil and gas industry were not hit as hard. Like their parents weren't hit as hard as other people who maybe lost jobs and stuff because of the recession. And so it, it's just like it keeps you insulated. And the church, uh, which should be a place where you're able to um, 
able to rip, kind of rip away, uh, rip away the layers of, of class and society so that you can truly see your neighbors and truly uh, commune with them. Like it, it has become a place to reinforce those, those social barriers, which uh, I don't know. I, I don't have a question here. I was just agreeing with you. <laughs> this, is, this is just like your turn, my turn, your turn. Um, Sorry, Nathan. Yeah, no. Just soapbox turns. Yeah. Well, but I think that, that you're right. I mean, I think there's something that should be interrogated about the church, the Episcopal church to say specifically, uh, but any church that has an endowment Right or any church that exists to pay uh, for buildings only, or churches that own property in a major city and have billions of dollars of of net worth. I'm not going to name any names, but like, what if like that 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 stuff should be interrogated for that same reason? Like, what kind of like it's it's just really shitty theology. I mean, it's like anti biblical theology if you really want to get into it. But there's. It, it all plays into that same idea of like, how do we, we, well, what if the church doesn't exist? Like we got to preserve the church. Like this is where Isaac is going to wish he was here because this is, this is like teeing it up for Isaac's take on the institutional, the mainline church is dying. But it's like, maybe the church should die in the way that we know it because in order to get to the place where we're actually meeting the needs of other people. Like I don't, I, I love a nice, you know, cathedral. I, I, I think they're pretty. I like to go into them and see them, but it's like, if that becomes the, the the work of the church is to maintain those buildings, that's that's or or if the only work of the church is opening them up on Sunday morning so I can come in and see them and they're not doing anything else during the week, then I think I think that is a failure of Christianity. Uh, and this is not new. This is not a new take. There's nothing hot about this take at all. Uh, speaking of uh, of uh, uh, tepid or or lukewarm <laughs> takes, Nathan. But it's but I think it is one of those things that we we just get into this idea that we have to. Per- perpetuate something. And, and again, this is the where the thing of like mutual just blows all of this out of the water. It says, well, what if we didn't do that? What if we just didn't do anything that the church and we just said, hey, what do you need uh, people in my community? And we serve that. It's so simple. It's, it's kind of maddening how simple it is. So anyway, let's, let's get back on, on topic. I got, I'm, I was about ready to mention neoliberalism again, so I'm not going to. No, do it. <laughs> no, Come it's, on. it's too Come much. Again. It's just too much. So of uh, uh, neoliberalism aside. <laughs> yes, move on. <laughs> I know that you, Nathan, were you kind of grew up in the church, but um, were not part of it for a long time and ended up back in the Episcopal world. Um, and I guess I, if you're open to it, I'd be interested in hearing like what kind of led you back to the church um, after being away for a long time. Yeah, so I grew up in this small holler called Loudendale, and I grew up in the Church of Nazarene, uh, probably because my holler only had two churches in it, and we didn't want to drive any farther to go anywhere else. So uh, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, and the only thing I really remember are like the Sunday school songs. You know, Jesus loves the little children, uh, this little light of mine, that sort of thing. Uh, and I went to a Baptist church for a while because they had better door prizes for their youth group. Classic. Which is the best reason to go. It's uh, little matchbox cars. Uh, and then my parents divorced, so I kind of just fell out of the whole church thing. Uh, believe it or not, divorce will do that to you. <laughs> but it wasn't. Oh, yeah, there was the period in high school where I was identifying as agnostic, but playing in a praise and worship band <laughs> because my friend Trey led the band and I wanted to be in a band with him. That is literally, it's, it sounds like something out of a Brian Bliss novel. Yeah, especially the Trey is the perfect, that's like the mm, the perfect uh, the perfect addition to that story. So keep going. He, he, uh, he will play in like uh, uh, coffee shops now. And he'll do like Jason Mraz covers. So that was that's the most logical track for that guy's life, honestly. Still love him to death, though. Uh, our band name, which I did not have a say in because it was already the name of the band, uh, was Imperishable. So. Oh my God. That's so close. That's like Crucifixoria. I know. I know. I was waiting for it. Oh, Imperishable uh, we is good. We would play Chris Tomlin songs, but it wasn't really until like identifying as agnostic, but like the entire time that I I kind of identified like that, uh, I would say like, yeah, I don't believe, but I wish I could. 
like that was kind of my line because there was like something about it that still kind of drew me in, whether it be like learning about an historical level. And then uh, like three years ago, pretty much, I know it's been three years because the uh, the lectionary reading has looped around <laughs> uh, back on itself like a snake. Um, and it's to make a long story short, a friend got into some legal trouble or like trouble with the law because of an abusive ex. They wound up in jail for a night. My friend did um, because of the abusive ex lying. And in jail, she was like, oh, like she prayed for the first time in forever. And she said something along the lines, if, if you get me out tonight, uh, I will go to church Sunday morning. Uh, and then because of her saying this, I felt like I shouldn't let her go to church alone for some reason. So I was like, okay, you choose where you want to go. I'll come with you and and show support for you during this like very difficult period of your life. Uh, and we liked it a lot. We ended up at a Roman Catholic church, but then the Catholic Bishop of West Virginia was doing um, bad stuff. Um, when are they not? When are they not? <laughs> the moral is don't become a bishop in any oh, denomination. Well, yeah, you're on, on, on brand for the podcast. So <laughs> yeah. And we wound, we wound up at an Episcopal church. Uh, and like no one from the Catholic church we were going to ever like stopped us to say like, hi, or what pride do you hear? Uh, but the people at the Episcopal church, I think we're just so surprised to see two early 20 somethings in the pew and like excited <laughs> that it felt like really nice. And we very like, quickly became members of this community with her joining the choir and then me doing like like lay people stuff and like serving in that way so it they kind of assimilated us into it very quick and it just felt like right um and and i'm not sure if i had gone to any other like episcopal church if it would have hit as well but like this group of people in this setting at this time of my life, uh, it just drew me back in for better or worse. Yeah, that's the Holy Spirit saying, uh, "Fuck around and find out." Uh, yeah, that's exactly. that's my favorite. <laughs> that's my favorite moment. I mean, and and I I say that respectfully. Like, it, I think it's funny anyway. But it's like that's I love stories like that because it's one of those moments where like, why am I here? <laughs> How did I get here? But then being unable to like not unable to leave it, but not wanting to leave it. Uh, and so I love stories where we, you end up finding yourself in this community that you would have not necessarily chosen with a population. And, and I think it flies in the face of a lot of the way the church talks about how we need to attract uh, young people, quote unquote, the nuns, whatever, whatever the word is that they're, they're using now. It flies in the face of that. Instead, all it is is uh, how can we quickly get people assimilated into this kind of like family that we have that we call it the church? Uh, so anyway, that's that's uh, I, I I love that story. How can we make people feel welcome? It's right. not that hard of a question, people. Yeah, yeah. It's and and it's not only making them feel welcome, but also letting them get plugged into the church and not being. Threatened like by condescending, yeah, threatened. or threatened by. I was gonna say threatened by like new energy and new ideas, which I think is, you know, we we do it this way, <laughs> or as they say up in uh, Minnesota, interesting. Um, you know, the, the the way to, but to be able to be open to that kind of stuff is the way that churches, you know, that's the way you actually attract people because it's it's almost never the doctrine that's going to bring somebody in. It's not going to be your Twitter opinion about about uh, the Eucharist or anything like that, or liturgy or any of that stuff, is not going to bring people in, despite what TikTok priests and other people think, um, is that it's like it's actually going to be that kind of stuff. That idea of like, here's how you connect and here's you're welcome in this in this space with us. And then the other stuff becomes secondary. Like, no, I, I just, I don't, very few people I think join churches because they have a theological imperative in their life instead of something they just are looking for something different. So I don't know, maybe other people do. I have never done that and I've never seen that in the church or very rarely seen that in the church. Well, as I've said multiple times, no theology, just vibes. <laughs> yes. It's like, I... 
I mean, I'm going to uh, have to read theology uh, eventually because of some uh, quote-unquote life decisions or whatever. But like it, the average uh, parishioner isn't reading these old texts and trying to find like what was the third century meaning or belief on this certain topic or what does you know this theologian have to say about whatever the the, the reading Sunday is. Uh, they just want to be told like a new perspective on the reading and how that can impact them and their life now or why is that subject uh, scripture say like oh we really should support mutual aid and here's why in uh acts they say whatever uh and, you know the thing that kind of drew me to it was uh like Again, I don't remember anything from my Nazarene upbringing. I can't tell you a specific piece of like Nazarene-specific theology because I was uh, seven or six or whatever. And uh, but like, it, there's a lot of talk, and I've said this to, to CJ when we were hanging out a couple of weeks ago. Like, there's a lot of talk about like deconstruction and evangelical, like right now. Um, but it feels like coming back to church in this time and place and with these people, like I'm building something of my own mm. other than um, deconstructing something that was already there. I love that. And I love what you said before that um, people aren't looking for it. Some people I think are looking for those, like, what does it mean originally? Like when they were writing the creed, like why did they choose this language? And I think sometimes that does feed people. But I think we do a disservice to people who are uh, what you're what you were just explaining like where we don't consider like theology as like a, a communal effort especially as Episcopalians like we should be thinking about uh, this is a communal uh, effort and this idea of like con a constructive theology that Nathan you bring something to that CJ you bring something to that and like claiming your worth as a theologian for as 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 hokey as I think that probably comes across and sounds but I think like being able to like and this is one of the reasons why I so like working with kids and teenagers is like giving them like that kind of like the keys to that car is the way that you actually keep people connected to the church you say okay how do you i mean i i'm i i i think i don't know if standpoint epistemology has gone out of style it probably has but like it's that idea of like what you bring into this your life experiences that you bring into this community are going to uh, factor into how we think theologically and how we live together and and it's so important to do that rather than having you know, and this is the part that always drives me nuts on Twitter is like, I don't, I, I honestly don't care about being right. Well, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> this, this, <laughs> this podcast has proven that's not true. Uh, but no, but I'm saying like, as far as like systematic, like theology, like, like we don't have to think about, like we think about that in this weird way and it becomes this like purity test that is on par with like evangelicals on the left side about like, what do you think about communion or what do you think about this? And that stuff does not matter to most of the people who walk into the church. Um, and instead, I, I just think there's a, there's, a, there's a lesson there for uh, clergy and for people that care about this stuff that you can hold on to that stuff tightly, but it's, it's not necessarily the thing that is what other people are needing. They, they need that kind of constructive element to it. So, so yeah, I, I think that's awesome. That's, that's one of my, I love hearing that kind of stuff because I think it's, that's the stuff that changes how churches are perceived and how churches kind of work. Uh, even on just on a parish level, is by allowing people to come in and say, "No, I'm constructing something, and I want to see what this has. What, what does the tradition have to say about this? Okay, here's what I'm bringing to that, and how do those two things talk to each other?" It's like us, us being like the people in this church have been brought together with our skill sets and our life experiences uh, for a reason. Now we need to take those experiences and what we bring to the table, and figuring out how we can extend that table outside of the church on more than just Sunday morning or else the, the no viability long-term you have to, to be of the world and helping people. Uh, and that's not just me going on a tear. It's that the book literally tells you to. Yeah. I mean, nothing to add. I agree. <laughs> No theology, um, just nice. Yeah, well, it's just like, hey, guys, have you considered not being a fucking nerd? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I say as a huge nerd. Yeah. Well, you just, I'm not telling you to go outside people who argue about theology on the internet all day. 
but could you just for like 10 minutes and like even if you, I, I don't know, just, just go, go give a banana to someone and actually do something for once. Or maybe just take the banana yourself and sit in a park and just, just chill. Yeah, just, just be okay. Just world. log off for a little log bit. Off. <laughs> I, Which is why, as your rector, I promise to never tweet my opinions. God. Yeah. <laughs> your bishop will love that. Your bishop will be so excited. <laughs> I, I'll just tweet my bad opinions about other topics, though. So, <laughs> like when I call out uh, other podcasts for the way that they uh, use their social media feed. I mean, that 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 tracks. Uh, when we were talking about competition earlier, I was like, yeah, competition's bad, except for when we're trying to get to the top of this podcast game. Uh, we, so that that's fine. We got we to bring all those other people down. No, no other podcast can succeed because we need to be up at the top. But other exactly. than that, competition's bad. Um, are we are we in competition with any other podcasts? Who's our enemy? I mean, we can I, start a blood feud right now. Well, I, I mean, mean, I, I guess not. we've already called out. I guess we've already called out the liturgist, but oh. that's more Isaac's beef. We did a whole episode on the liturgist, basically, <laughs> with a with a, a dunk of a title name too. But I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was I was mostly kidding. But yeah, I was I was thinking of like the liturgist. Um, I don't know. I just you know I I feel like. This is, you know, we have things that people need to hear on this podcast. And, and if there's other stuff, all that white noise of other podcasts, we just, we just got to tune that stuff out and get us to the forefront. So that's, that's what I'm looking at. But Look, if I got into very specific Appalachian podcasting, there's one that <laughs> I would dunk on so hard because they deserve it. Uh, and then the other are the trillbillies who are cool and perfect in every way, and I'm not going to criticize them. Yeah, I'd agree with not that. Not only because they're very good at Twitter, but because I genuinely enjoy their content. Yes. yes. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> Wait, but should we open up the fight corner? Just start dunking, Nathan. All right. Uh, to the fight corner, I invite everyone who had to be incentivized to get a free vaccine <laughs> after over half a million people died. Yep, there it is. There's that. And uh, could I also add that you are in the state of West Virginia? Yes, where which our means vaccine you... program uh, is called Do It for Baby Dog. Baby Dog is the name of our governor's bulldog. I think it's a bulldog. And so if you sign up for this vaccine incentive program, you get entered to win uh, maybe a million dollars. Or maybe you'll get a, a lifetime hunting license. Or, or also maybe just license. a gun. <laughs> a or, gun or, or a truck. Or you might just stay alive in the midst of a global pandemic. Yeah. Just putting that out there. Wait, it, is it really called Do It For Baby do, Dog? Do It For Baby Dog. Oh my God. The whole thing is Baby Dog wants you to get vaccinated. Baby Dog <laughs> wants you to fight. Baby Dog didn't become a thing until like late last year, early this year, even though he's been governor for over four years at this point, uh, because he realized it was a distraction from him, like not paying his taxes <laughs> yes, or not living in the governor's mansion, even though he's required to. Or owning the Greenbrier. <laughs> yes. Or owning America's resort. Uh, and so every time there's a controversy, he'll just do something cute with Baby Dog, and we uh, buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. Um, sounds like a a bit from Park Parks and Rec is what this sounds like. like. This, <laughs> this state's a fucking joke. Like the police, not West Virginia specifically, but Huntington, the police station in Huntington. Uh, is named the Gene Dean Public Safety Building. <laughs> Gene Dean itself sounds like a fake name. Mm -hmm. uh, however, she was a former mayor uh, who is British who lost to like a 26-year-old college student oh. uh, in her, in her re-election. <laughs> this state, <laughs> this town is a sitcom and I'm sick of it. And like, I love it and... I want to stay here and I want to like change things for the better, continue my uh, mutual aid work. But also, I kind of just went off this ship. <laughs> so yeah, it, the whole... Look, I want to have faith and hope in society. But when people have, are offered a free shot for this vaccine that's killed millions of people worldwide, 
more than 600,000 in our country itself. Uh, And their reaction is like, yeah, but what's in it for me? It's like, fuck you. Or you can't, you can't do that. My my yeah. rights. <laughs> I'll fight each and every one of you. Yeah, and as you're fighting them, I'll just come back behind them with the with the syringe that doop, and give them the give them the uh, so we'll get them all vaccinated. I mean, I read there's a Washington Post article or opinion piece of that mandatory vaccines are coming, and it was there was nothing like groundbreaking. It was mostly just talking about how polio um, and I can't remember the other one uh, became mandatory vaccines for all kids, and it's like. This is and this this goes again once again to neoliberalism. This idea that I have the right to choose my own kind of like independence, if you were, if it will, over the uh, the the health and safety of the broader community. And and what's even more like terrible and kind of just a. Um, heinous about this is the lack of like vaccines in Africa or in, in other and, and we have people who we are like warehouse warehouses we more right. than we need and we people won't get people them. are being arrogant about it right wingers want to try to make this a Christian nation so bad and then they're given an opportunity to love your neighbor in the most basic way possible between just wearing a mask for a few months and then getting a vaccine when it's available. And we're not going to hit herd immunity because they're like worried about their rights. It's dumb. And it's, the fight corner's in a Chili's parking lot, right? That's correct. Yeah. You do Bob yeah. Evans in West Virginia if you wanted to, though. Okay. That's a whole other <laughs> plug. What, you should just pick whatever parking lot has the worst vibes in your community. It, so the whole Bob Evans thing near the start of the pandemic, did, do you know what Jim Justice said? Mm-mm. He, he didn't he encourage everyone to go. If you want to go eat at Bob Evans, you oh, go right. eat Bob Evans. Yeah. I have, I, have a, I have a childhood nostalgia of my dad who my parents were divorced. I didn't see him very often when he would come would take me to Bob Evans. But it, there is, I think there are definitely vibes there that you could fight in the parking lot in most of them that I've been to. So, yeah. Well, because this is West Virginia, I will either fight them in the parking lot of a Tudor's Biscuit World. Okay, there it is. Yep. <laughs> or a Shoney's. Shoney's is probably the right one. Yeah. So, yeah. But look, I, was, I had a Tudor's Biscuit mm-hmm. for the first time in a long time the other day when I was visiting Nathan. And it, I mean... Talking about a fight corner, it took me out. I lost that fight. (laughs) It brought you into the fight corner. (laughs) Yeah, that's good stuff. Tudors. The fight was internal. Yeah. (laughs) Well, like the Tudors versus uh, Bojangle. That's Bojangle. So those are the two kind of like Southern restaurants where if I'm in an airport, it's like, hmm. Okay, I wonder if they're going to have this, and and so I'll I'll do the walk around to make sure that I if I can get it because you just can't get it very often uh, in yeah, other places. No, the only airport tutors is in Charleston yep. Yeager Airport, the airport that I've never flown into, but I'm told that uh, every time you land there, you get worried about your plane going off the hill that's yes. at the end of the runway uh, yeah. because we did bad airport design. Same in Roanoke because we just. Even though we have this whole valley, they put it right at the foot of a mountain just for fun. Um, <laughs> drive by fight corner though about Bojangles is that uh, my, my both my parents uh, grew up in Roanoke and moved around the south as young adults. And my mom interviewed as like to be the assistant for the CEO and founder of Bojangles, and she did not get the job because he was looking for a, a perky cheerleader type. And oh my god! My mom, while being very competent at working in an office, was um, <laughs> could not be described as perky <laughs> in um. her mid twenties. So she was like, uh, "No, absolutely not." Anyway, so shout out to that guy, deeply sexist CEO <laughs> and founder of Bojangles, Tutors Forever. So when the first Bojangles in Huntington opened up, it was like a multi-day event that shut down traffic (laughs) out on Route 60 to the point that the Division of Highways uh, had to go out there with electronic signs that said, uh, you know, watch out for Bojangles traffic. Uh, And because the first Bojangles was so successful, they built another on the other side of town uh, which is where I went to the uh, the buffet uh, after. So I got uh, baptized and confirmed the same night at the Easter Vigil 
and we got drunk in the church basement on champagne, which is something I wouldn't do now because I'm uh, sober. Uh, but then we had Easter morning service, got drunk in the church basement again, and then we went to the Bojangles buffet. So that's my baptism story. Um, but now both Huntington Bojangles are closed. <laughs> they went from shutting down traffic to now the next, like the nearest ones, like probably an hour away. Mm. And that's Appalachian decay. Yeah. That's that's a hillbilly elegy right there. Mm. So the true hillbilly elegy was for the biscuits that we had all along. Yeah, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, I guess. Um, uh, CJ, this has you, been an, oh, sorry. No, did you have a fight corner as well? You know, I had a different one, but in keeping with like the uh, Appalachian theme of the fight corner in which we are currently fighting, um, everyone who has not yet received a vaccine... <laughs> I no, think no. anyone who had to be incentivized to get their vaccine. Okay, yeah. So all of them, and also the CEO and founder of Bojangles. Um, I also just want to, like, let's throw Jim Justice in the ring, or more like the Greenbrier. So I've visited the Greenbrier, which is in Greenbrier County. America's Resort. Yeah, which Greenbrier County is um, right on the border with Virginia and my parents and brother and I went over there before the pandemic just because you can take a tour of the, um, the bomb bunker. shelter. Yeah, the bunker that was built there specifically so that like if there was an atomic bomb dropped on Washington, D.C., they would take like all of the senators and put them in an underground bunker with like all of the all of these props to make it look as if they were living above ground to whatever American population was left after the nuclear fallout. It's a really interesting tour, but the Greenbrier itself is for rich people. Like I could never afford to stay there. I don't I, know anyone who could. So during my college radio days, I went there as media to like cover the golf tournament, even though I have no knowledge of golf. And showing, we, we stayed at like a friend's house because obviously we can't afford the green bar during a major PGA golf tournament. <laughs> but it, the green bar was a place I had seen like all my life and like TV ads and like uh, history books of like this big place. And it was so surreal going up the driveway and seeing it for the first time. And the entire time, I just had this feeling of like, oh, I don't belong here. I'm too poor for this shit. It is a monument to like the tackiest rich people uh, you yeah. can think of. I'm have looking, you ever I'm have looking you been at, inside, Brian? No, I'm looking. I, I didn't even remember it. I'm looking at pictures. I know that I knew the outside, but I'm looking at pictures of it right now. And it it's this is like, this is what I imagined uh, like a lot of Donald Trump's like 80s kind of uh, vibe. Like this is, that's, that's kind of the, like some of this stuff is just like, there's like a candy cane house um, and a couple well, of other there things. There was rumors that he was going to buy it at one point. So uh, unsurprising. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the inside is decorated in this Rococo style, which I find tacky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just because I think it looks garish. Uh, but it is also like, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really weird place that kind of peaked in the 50s and now is like this relic of like uh, when West Virginia had uh, an economy that people cared about. <laughs> and now it's just like this weird monument to like the only place that rich people go in West Virginia. <laughs> yeah, just looking at the pictures, it definitely has the vibe of like back when... Um, Back when the good old days type of vibe, where people can show up good and yeah, can show up and like you know I'm gonna sit here and uh, there's this white tablecloth and you know this like you said the tacky uh, like there's like a picture of like a banana split like in, in one of the restaurants and it's like okay I, I see this like look at this I mean this is not gonna help the uh, I can't there you go but it's like it it looks like something that would be at Disney like it looks like something that would be at Disney that's made up that you're supposed to believe is in is real and then you get in here and it looks like a cruise ship that's what it reminds me of sorry I, I'm having a moment here uh, I've never I've never <laughs> I'm seen so this sorry in... to introduce you so, introduce you to this yeah this so is... I have been in close proximity to sitting U.S. Senator Joe Manchin twice mm -hmm. in my life 
uh, once was at work at my current job. He was in the office. Uh, but the first time was the week that I was covering that golf tournament that I mentioned. And we were taking the media shuttle from the parking lot to um, the media center. And someone waves down the media shuttle to, to get on. Uh, and on walks Joe Manchin. Uh, now, because we were a bunch of dumb college kids, our, um, our MO every day was to get as high as we could and then go to the golf tournament. Uh, so we were like Joe Manchin walks on our shuttle and then we all started like kind of basically trying to hide the fact that we're high from this senator. <laughs> he was probably zooted. He was probably on coke. <laughs> well, I, did. I would party with Joe in a heartbeat. Let's be real here. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I guess the point of putting the Greenbrier in the uh, in the fight corner is that it is, it is owned by the current governor and therefore like there's got to be something he's doing something with taxes. Like there's gotta be something strange going on. It's a monument to cap to like a bygone era of capitalism. Excess. Yeah. And sin and all that's wrong with the world. And also it just looks tacky. So it just looks bad. Yeah. I mean, I'm coming to West Virginia this winter to go snowboarding. So I'm going to, I'm definitely going to try to stay there. How, can I afford it? Is it like that no, expensive? No, okay. absolutely not. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll do a, uh, maybe we can do a, uh, uh, what do you call Let's it? A crowdfunded a, uh, mutual aid, mutual aid to get Brian and uh, CJ and Isaac at a room at the Greenbrier. We'll do a live. Oh, wow. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. And Nathan. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a live, a live podcast recording. What? What snowboarding resort are you going to? Winter uh, place? Yeah, I mean I, I mean, I like both of them, but probably winter yeah. place, yeah. Okay, because they're both on like the complete opposite I side know. of the state. It's such a hard state to get around, even though it's so small. It, did, it took me like four hours to drive to Matewan from Roanoke, which is... It should not take that long in oh. Texas. In Texas, if you drive four hours, you're like in Austin from Fort Worth. We did a bad job. Well, on the one hand, you didn't blast through a bunch of mountains. You just That's put roads true. on top of them. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. There you it's, go. We went with the valley rather than cutting through like Kentucky does. On the other hand, there was me on like a highway going like 30 miles up <laughs> per hour up a mountain because I cannot drive in the mountains because I am a flatlander. And so, and there's a line of traffic behind me and I'm just like, I am so sorry. <laughs> Were you going up or down? I was going up. Okay. That, going because to, I just like, there were so many, you know, turns in the road and the um, road signs were like saying, don't take these curves more than 30 miles per hour. So I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm sure everyone behind me wanted to put me in the fight corner. These native West Virginians who are like, who is this person? That's funny. So in summary, mutual aid is good. Churches should give out Narcan and not evangelize as much as they're giving out the Narcan. Uh, if you need to be paid to get a vaccine, you should be ashamed of yourself. And don't let CJ drive in the mountains. Highway infrastructure, yeah, I think that's the final point. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of the Without south infrastructure. Yeah, there you go. All full circle. Full circle. Well, do you have anything you want to plug, Nathan? No. <laughs> it's I don't have a, a podcast or any like website I'm writing on. Uh, what I do for a living is like writing, but also I don't connect it with any of my personal twitters because. What I do for a living is not what I want to be known for. So I'm trying to keep it as like hidden as possible. <laughs> um, is there a link to is there a link to the imperish uh, uh, the imperishable band camp? Band camp, yeah. I mean, uh, sa sadly, no. <laughs> we never recorded. I wish there is one picture of me playing bass in a Pink Floyd T-shirt, and I look very bad. And I think that's the only relic I have from those times. Yeah, and we could have we could have we could have swiped some imperishable uh, tunes uh, to I put know. on as the intro music or the, or the outro uh, for this episode. I that would have been amazing. Um, look, when we ruled the Alum Creek area for our <laughs> thirteen months, we were unstoppable. But 
as it turns out, the Elm Creek area is not the most viable region for the music industry. <laughs> Despite it being where the songwriter of the George Strait song, Carrying Your Love With Me, was born. I mean, it peaks. Damn. Sometimes you peak early, so. Look, if I peaked at 16, then... No, no, I'm saying the, the region. Rough life for the, the, okay. the musical viability of the region. Yeah, not good. you specifically, no. We no would... Because if I peaked at 16, then it's a sad way down from there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying imperishable was your peak. People, people <laughs> would need to be giving me mutual aid. <laughs> oh, gosh. So in conclusion, don't follow Nathan. Listen to George Strait. Yeah, look, that's... If only the rest of Twitter would get that through their thick skull. <laughs> oh, Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been very fun. 